0: What city is this?
1: One of the four inquired. Frank had difficulty guessing the speaker's gender with any certainty. Its clothes, some of which were sewn to and through its skin, hid its private parts, and there was nothing in the dregs of its voice or in its willfully disfigured features that offered the least clue. When it spoke, the hooks that transfixed the flaps of its eyes and were wed by an intricate system of chains... Passed through flesh and bone alike To similar hooks through the lower lip Were teased by the motion Exposing the glistening meat underneath I asked you a question Do you understand? The figure beside the first speaker demanded Its voice, unlike that of its companion Was light and breathy The voice of an excited girl Every inch of its head had been tattooed with an intricate grid, and at every intersection of horizontal and vertical axes, a jeweled pin driven through to the bone. Its tongue was similarly decorated. Do you even know who we are? Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I guess you've been reading Clive Barker, right? That's right. Yes,
0: our cold open is uh, is, was a passage from the 1986 novella The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker, which he himself adapted and directed in 1987 into the horror film we all know, as Hellraiser. Oh, wait a minute. There was just one year gap in between writing the novella and making the movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Clive Barker was on a roll uh, uh-huh. in the in the late eighties. Like he was. I mean, he's still on a roll. He's one of these uh, these creators that really has has not visibly slowed down.
1: Um, was that Stephen King quote from that year? He said, "I've seen the future of horror, and it is Clive Barker." Yeah.
0: Yeah, quote, quote the King." I think that 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 quote was actually in the trailer for <laughs> for Hellraiser, the film. As was "I am pain." Oh no, I think he doesn't he doesn't declare that he is pain until. Uh, <laughs> Three or
1: possibly four. Um, I, I'm imagining a, a future crossover sequel. It's like Jetsons meet the Flintstones, but it's Judge Dredd meets Pinhead, and they just alternate back and forth with "I am the law" and "I am pain." Well, that that actually sounds like
0: a great matchup. Uh-huh. I, I actually I would be a little surprised if
1: it hasn't uh,
0: been done or at least pitched because Judge Dredd is thrown down with um, like alien before mm-hmm. and uh, i think he's met
1: batman well, ultimate, uh, pinhead's been in a number of uh, comic books you could see the the uh, more nuanced side coming out of each because you discover that in small ways judge Dredd is also pain and pinhead <laughs> is also the law yeah um so, so i, I want
0: to you know wax nostalgic for a moment here uh, i didn't get into hellraiser movies till probably 1995 because i was too young for them really uh, <laughs> prior to that <laughs> wait how old was that though Oh, don't make me do math, Joe. But I was I was like in junior high or, or so uh-huh. uh, in 95. And by that point, the, the, the first three films were already out and Doug Bradley's Pinhead was already cemented as a, as a horror icon. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's
1: up there with like Freddie and Jason at that point.
0: Yeah. Like he, in the 1994 Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes, the Shinning episode. Oh, the Shinning is so good. Pinhead is one of the horror icons that drags Homer out of the uh, refrigerator.
1: Oh yeah, the the walk-in freezer. It's like it's like Jason, Freddy, Pinhead, and then just some
0: werewolf or something. I think so. Yeah, it's like a a quick scene. But like already by that point, I I think it had been decided Mm -hmm. that uh, this uh, this 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 creature, this uh, entity, uh, had a role in the the Halloween pantheon of Hollywood. So you read the book before you saw the movie. Um, I think I read the book after I saw the movie okay uh, I remember reading it on a school trip uh, it, yeah and it's uh it's it's short it's a novella but uh yeah it was really it was really impressive at the time as the our cold um, open illustrates it, it. has a slightly different feel. It's uh, the film Hellraiser is essentially the hell, uh, the Hellbound Heart. It is uh, you know Barker's own adaptation of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, there are differences, and one of the key differences is uh, this character of Pinhead, the Hell Priest, uh, whatever you want to call it. It's just called Lead cenobite in the first Hellraiser, the, the role played by Doug Bradley. In the novella, it is
1: it has a slightly different uh, flair to it. Yeah, I was reading some things about the production and it seems to me that the reason Doug Bradley's pinhead became such an icon in the movie had to do with the practical necessities of filmmaking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, It was something about like character – like the other uh that appear in the film – would have been given more dialogue, but their makeup effects didn't allow it. And oh, right,
0: because you have like the chatter and the Butterbean um, uh, Cinebites and- uh, The Butterball. Butterball, yes. Butter no, butter, <laughs> butter get, uh, similar Butterbean. Butterbean. Similar. But yeah, that makes sense. The makeup
1: prevented them from speaking. Mm-hmm. And Doug Bradley could speak, though he couldn't walk around very well, apparently. He had these black uh, contact lenses in that made it hard for him to see. And he was afraid of tripping over the skirts of his uh, of, of his cinnabite robe. So he didn't uh, move very easily, but he could talk. And so he could say things like, Save your tears. It's mm-hmm. a waste of good suffering. Yeah, he has a very commanding voice. Uh,
0: uh, whereas uh, in the original novella, the character that would become Pinhead is described as this excited girl. And the, and the cinnabites themselves come off they still come off as as grotesque in their own way, but mm. they're more they're more androgynous for starters, and then there is this there's more this sense that they are not as demonic as they are just otherworldly, like they have lived in another realm of the senses for so long. Uh, and that they, they just don't have anything in common with with human sense perception anymore.
1: Right. They are they are explorers that go beyond the boundaries of pleasure and pain, and that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about today when we get to the uh, the science portion of today's episode. But I know you're not done talking about Hellraiser, right? Oh no. Uh, and and I do want to just uh, remind everybody, uh, as far as the Hellbound Heart
0: goes, uh, you can you can find it for yourself on Amazon or wherever you get your book in all formats, including a a dollar ninety nine ebook and both an audiobook production and a full-blown like audio play production. Uh, so you have no excuse not to go in and grab a copy of it if you want to check it out. I also highly recommend The Books of Blood. Uh, those are some There's some really great short stories in those collections. Uh, but yeah, I, I've always been a, a Clive Barker fan. I haven't read everything he's, he's written. Uh, but uh, there's just an, an unmatched um, creativity there, both uh, on the written, written page but behind the
1: camera uh, and visual art as well. Uh, just before we came in here, I was having a conversation with our colleague Ben Bolan of uh, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know and Ridiculous History, and he he was asking what my favorite Clive Barker was, and I had to admit I have not read any. I, uh, for some reason, just never gotten into Barker. He was very surprised because he knows I like horror mm-hmm. fiction, but uh, I don't know for some reason I just never went there. It may be because when I. I don't know. When I first saw the movie Hellraiser, I think this was like my freshman year of college, I found it actually very depressing. Yeah. Well, I found it – it was full of interesting imagery. I thought it was actually kind of original and imaginative. uh, But something about the world it, it pictured seemed very bleak to me. It was like a world where nothing is good and everything goes to hell and there's nothing to care about.
0: Yeah, it's a bleak, brooding film. And and I can see why I was especially into it as like a brooding uh, uh-huh. junior high uh, student and as a, you know, a teen. Right. Spoke um, to you then. Yeah. I mean, then also it, it felt, uh, you know, is a cool way to rebel, I think, too. Because like mm-hmm. Stephen King, I was super into Stephen King at the time. And Stephen King can certainly be, be you know, graphic. But, but Barker I always felt weirder, uh, more counterculture in a way that really resonated uh, with me. And, you know, there's probably no better way to push back against small towns, Southern Baptist upbringing than to to turn to, an, a, you know, the explosively creative worlds of an openly gay British horror writer.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I will say it is, uh, despite its flaws, I mean, I will talk about how I just rewatched the movie mm-hmm. uh, and it did not match up with my memories at all. I found it, I have to admit, I found it rather funny upon rewatching it, especially a lot of the line delivery by the Cinnabites and its over-the-top ponderousness. <laughs> that, yeah. Like, uh, th- there were a whole, there was a lot of unintentional laughter. But I will say, it is still a pretty imaginative concept. It was, like, very original for its time. Let's, uh, now that we're, we're speaking
0: on, uh, on Pinhead's voice in the uh-huh. movie, let's have a quick uh, a splash from the trailer.
1: We'll tear your soul apart.
0: That's just a sample, though, because most of the original theatrical trailer is screaming. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so I guess should we briefly discuss the plot of the movie? Yes, and for anybody who hasn't listened to a movie episode we've done before, we will get to uh, you know, a lot more science and interpretation of of this particular uh, you know, cinematic installment. But, but first, we do need to remind everybody uh, about what's up in Hellraiser, <laughs> uh, because it's easy to forget, especially if you've seen a lot of the sequels. Uh, and uh, and if you've seen some of the later sequels, then then truly, God help you. But uh, the original <laughs> plot line goes like this. Uh, do you have a creepy uncle? Well, did your creepy uncle ever say, have an affair with your mom and then use an antique puzzle box to open a dimensional rift in your grandma's house, summoning a weird sect of trans-dimensional uh, in your uncle's quest for new extremes of pleasure? Well, that uncle is Frank Cotton. <laughs> And yes, he's dragged away to the realm of the Cenobites of the Order of the Gash and after a while manages to escape in a much reduced state um, and works out a plot to reclaim his body. And that's essentially the plot line of Hellraiser. Right.
1: So you got your core elements of this mysterious puzzle box that is just a normal kind of cube with some paintings on it. Mm -hmm. But if you manipulate it in the right way, press here and turn there and that kind of stuff, it starts opening up. Right. And then once it opens up, the, a, a familiar series of events unfolds where lights shine in through you know cracks in the walls and stuff uh, chains with hooks at the ends of them shoot out of the walls and grab you and then the cenobites show up and they 're these people usually with like shaved heads or just generally weird heads yeah uh, usually something has happened to their head they 're wearing black leather robes as if they 're a combination of they 're sort of like s and m priests. And they they show up and they're like, okay, it's time to take you away to a dimension beyond sensation. It's time to experience pain and pleasure indivisible.
0: Right, yeah. And they're – you know, they're they're very much – there's a boundary confusion with them, right? Because they're both ghastly uh, and beautiful in their own way. They're erotic and grotesque at the same time.
1: Yeah, and the suggestion – I think it's explored much more in the book – is that these creatures are part of some weird, esoteric, other-dimensional religious order that worships the exploration of the extremes of sensation, right? Yeah. And so they've gotten to the point where – where they can no longer tell the difference between pleasure and pain, it's just sort of like uh, experiences to the max all the time of whatever valence possible.
0: Yeah, it's it's more it's not like I'm going to pull your skin off, blah. It's more like, oh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm rude, I'm being rude. I should pull your skin off. Um, I should be a good host. I and, and, yeah, this is the, the the natural thing to do. Yeah,
1: uh, though <laughs> I, I feel like that. I, I think that's more there in the book, which again I haven't read. But in the movie, it does. Come to feel more like they're there to punish you. Sometimes mm-hmm. I don't know if this conceit about them just being sort of experimenters is really consistent in the film. No,
0: I mean in the, even in the first film, which is which is certainly the the, the truest uh, to the original source material. E- even in that, you can tell that. That Barker is leaning more into the idea of them as movie monsters, mm-hmm. uh, though it's still it's still Clive Barker's movie monsters. And Clive Barker is one of those creators who has always loved his monsters most of all, you know. Right. Uh, but but still, it, even in the film. You know the Cenobites are not the most important aspect of the plot. They're not the central antagonist. Uh, even our heroine uh, uh, Kirsty Cotton and her father Larry Cotton aren't as central to the plot as Frank, the um, uh, the individual we just disca- described, the uncle, and C- Kirsty's mom Julia. Uh, it's ultimately about their dark love affair that ultimately transcends the boundaries of life and death. Uh, you know they're the characters at the heart of all this, and and they're the ones whose desires we most understand and even on some level sympathize with,
1: even though they are, you know, dark, desperate, and depressing characters. Yeah, I think the deal is that Frank is just this guy who's seen it all. He's had every hedonistic pleasure of the flesh possible. He's, you know, he's beyond good and evil. He has no morality left. Mm -hmm. He's He's just, like, trying to to seek the next highest possible sensation, uh, and he's usually got a knife out because he's just that kind of guy.
0: Right. And then Julia, on the other hand, uh, played by the the excellent Claire Higgins in this. Uh,
1: she's, uh, you know, by and large, the, the, the best performance in the film. There is one scene where I don't know if they did this on purpose, but the way they did her makeup and her hair, she looks exactly like David Bowie in his Aladdin Sane persona.
0: Oh, huh. I, I didn't notice that off to to look back at it yeah but uh but yeah, she's wonderful in it and, and in a same way her character- her character is also like trapped in a life of of tedium and boredom, mm-hmm. like her husband is this boring guy who watches yeah. boxing on television and and she just seems to be you know putting up with him uh-huh. uh and and so thus comes her attraction to frank and even when Frank comes back from the dead uh in this you know grotesque body uh you know she still ends up helping him.
1: Oh, and of course, helping him involves like killing a bunch of people, I oh, think yes. so he can it's not exactly clear he can basically drink their blood and thus reconstitute his original body,
0: yeah, like he the, yeah it's it's a little vague and I like that it's vague, you know, yeah. you are not really sure exactly what the necromancy is of all this, but that that is the the thing Frank is essentially a necromancer mm-hmm. uh and and has these these powers uh yeah looking back at at the film it's it you really can't overstate the importance of Frank and Juliet. They are the core of the film. Mm-hmm. they are its main characters and they are its main monsters mm-hmm.
1: yeah, the Cenobites show up mostly in the third act as a kind of uh almost as a kind of deus ex machina mm-hmm.
0: yeah, which is fitting because it, right. it, they are literally coming out of the machine right yeah
1: deus ex boxina <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: let'll see a, a few other things I want to say about the film, just rewatching it um the, the music is fine. It's a bit dramatic. Uh, but I, I, I've long wanted to see a cut of it with the original score by post-industrial act Coil. This was the late Peter Christofferson uh, who was also uh, in Throbbing Gristle and the late John Balance who was also in Psychic TV. So they, they had conducted the original – put together the original score for the film. And the replacement score uh, that's more traditional and cinematic was supposedly a condition of additional funding that Barker received in order to finish the special effects. In the film, uh, so I, I, I would my musical tastes lean far more Coil than they do traditional cinematic scores. So, uh, I mm-hmm. you know, when what I've heard of it, it sounds really interesting. So that's 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 one thought I have on it. Uh, and Coil, if you're not familiar with them, they were they were a big influence on on the likes of say Trent Reznor um, and and, uh, and of course Clive Barker was also uh, an influence on Trent Reznor as well.
1: Yeah. I'd say Nine Inch Nails is pretty thoroughly Cinebite music. Yeah,
0: yeah, especially the early stuff. Let's see what else uh, about this film. Oh, the the costumes and the uh, the practical effects I think hold up very well. Yeah, they do. And uh, I I think this is this is definitely a film where you look at it and you I'm impressed by just how ambitious it really was, perhaps overly ambitious, especially given the small budget and the fact that Barker was you know adapting his own work here, directing it as well. And this was his he'd done some screenwriting, but he had not directed anything previously. And uh, it's really you know it, it's they they go for not only the they have the the in there and all these effects, but also like a regeneration scene and a addition demon monsters that, you know, if you were being like maybe a little more careful with your budget, you might say, well, do we need this monster? We already have this monster. Uh Maybe we can actually cut two whole monsters and two big (laughs) practical effects from the film and use those funds elsewhere. But uh, still, you know, it, it, it mostly comes together.
1: I'm not quite sure the purpose served by the monster that's referred to as the engineer, which doesn't look anything like an engineer. Instead, it's like a big sort of larva that crawls down a hallway with a scary mouth on the bottom part chasing after people. Yeah, it's uh, that's
0: something that the engineer is mentioned in the novella, but it's more uh, – it's like a being of light or something. It's mm-hmm. its not a, a monster. So that, like, that I feel like comes off a little confusing in the picture. Like what is this and how is it connected with everything?
1: Now, I don't want to rag on the film too much, but I will say that one of the things that was funniest uh, about it to me is that Pinhead – Even in the first movie, I mean, I think it gets even more like this as the movies go on. Mm -hmm. Pinhead gets increasingly fretified; like he becomes like a wisecracking, you know, making jokes at the camera, kind of Freddy Krueger character. But even in the first movie, almost everything he says is this like threateningly pretentious kind of line that could be a quote on the VHS box cover. Oh yeah. It's all stuff like, We'll tear your soul apart, or the box, you opened it, we came. Mm-hmm. Or of course, uh the uh the inimitable I am pain.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, like Freddie, he has a lot of catchphrases and sort of quote-ready samples. Uh, and I've heard of him in a number of different DJ mixes as well, throwing a little pinhead, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also reminds me a bit of 90s pro wrestlers in that regard, oh, you know?
1: yeah, 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 yeah. He's like
0: The Rock. You know, he has, uh, The Rock's, I guess, more post-90s. But still, you know, he has his his catchphrases that he uh, lashes out with.
1: So you can imagine Macho Man Randy Savage saying, The box, you opened it, we came.
0: <laughs> I actually just learned that Doug Brad serves as the authority figure in the indie British occult themed wrestling promotion Black Craft Wrestling
1: I don't know what that
0: means <laughs> uh, well look it up You'll, it, it exists uh-huh. um, it's like clearly he's doing kind of like a he's not in a wrestling ring he's like showing up like they're doing a green screen thing and he's you know Making matches and whatnot, but mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's Doug Bradley uh, being Doug Bradley. But like he officiates a match by saying, "Your
1: suffering will be legendary, <laughs> even in hell."
0: <laughs> now, I will say that in the, I think it's by the fourth one, he does have a line about pain that um, that is, I think, is actually pretty good, where he says, uh, "Quote: uh, What you think of as pain is only a shadow." Pain has a face. Allow me to show it to
1: you. <laughs> Allow me to show it to you. And
0: uh, and uh, like that that line, I think, is pretty good. Like he gets at some of the uh, the intangible aspects of pain, uh, the uh, how difficult it is to understand another individual's pain or relate your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, this is and this is from Hellraiser Inferno. Then he goes on to say. Uh, uh, Gentlemen, I am pain, and he kind of he kind of ruins the moment. You know, it kind of goes a little far. He can't help but go for the catchphrase.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I am
0: pain. So, in summary, uh, uh, this is what I'll say about Hellraiser. Uh, it's a it's a film that I have a lot of nostalgia for, mm-hmm. and having rewatched it in the past week, I'd say that that more things work than don't work, and mm-hmm. that it's still like it's it's astounding that that they, everyone was able to put this film together. And, yeah. and then ultimately, like clearly it resonated, even though like my personal taste, I like the, the cenobites of the novella more, mm-hmm. like Pinhead worked, like Pinhead became a staple, like Pinhead is part of American popular culture now.
1: Uh, a couple years ago, I went through the process. I don't know why I decided I needed to do this, but I watched all of the Hellraiser sequels. <laughs> I don't think that's a journey people need to go on. Uh, there, there are fleeting pleasures throughout them. Like Part Three has some pretty funny stuff. Mm-hmm. Part Four has some funny moments. Part Three
0: it, is kind of like peak Freddy. Uh, uh, yeah, Hellraiser. Like where yeah. they realize, like, oh, this is what we've created. We've created this, 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 this horror creature that, mm-hmm. that the, you know, the masses are into, let's give him the film that this character deserves. Of course, part four is Pinhead Goes to Space. Yeah. Which is,
1: uh, I don't know, it's hard to sniff at that. Yeah, that that film is, is
0: notoriously a mess. But then it also just has so many like, crazy things in
1: it, it's hard to completely dismiss it. Uh, Uh, I kept wanting to see – I think I may have said this on the show before, but Rachel and I have frequently talked about how there needs to be uh, a crossover – again – Franchise crossover, but not with Judge Shred. This should be Hellraiser and then the the Air Bud sequels. Mm -hmm. They cross over. So you've got like Golden Retriever puppies and they're playing with the box and Ah. it's called Hell Buddies. Uh. And so the Cenobites come out and they're ready to do all their hooks and stuff, but then they're conquered by the cuteness of the puppies. So it's like, I am – oh, (laughs) oh.
0: All right. Well, on that note, let's take our first break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about puzzle boxes.
1: All right, we're back. All right, so we know that Hellraiser starts with a mysterious puzzle box. It's this box that uh, it can be opened, but how you open it is apparently not obvious. And people just fiddle around with it until they figure out the secret, and then they end up unleashing the hooks, the chains, the cenobites, and so forth.
0: Yeah, the, the first film and all subsequent films, there are generally going to be some scenes with somebody fiddling with the box. And it doesn't seem to— It seems to adhere to unreal physics, which Mm -hmm. is fitting. It is a magical box. It opens a magical doorway through which magical beings then enter. Um, uh, So, uh, you know, I don't take any issue with that. Uh, at all, but uh, of course, the, in the idea itself is just irresistible. We love myths about boxes that should not be opened, or the idea of a box that resists opening is also tremendous as well. An enclosure born of human ingenuity uh, that must be solved via uh, human ingenuity as well.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, a wonderful conceit for opening a story like this. That there is this thing. It, it requires effort. It suggests that there's kind of a. Th- that there's a beyond normal amount of interest, right? People seek out this box mm-hmm. so when they're, they're bored with all of the sensations of Earth and they they want to go beyond. They want to see what other level they can reach. They have to find this secret artifact.
0: Yeah, and you know, ultimately, I think we all have puzzle boxes like that in our lives that we're trying to unravel, right? <laughs> but um, uh, one of the interesting things here is that, of course, Clive Barker's not just creating this out of nothing. He's, he's drawing on inspirations. One of the inspirations is clearly... Clearly, you know, especially I think they, they flesh this out a little bit uh, in, in the fourth film, uh, playing on the tradition of philosophical toys uh, that the captivated audiences in the 18th century. And we've talked about some of these on the show before, like uh, the pooping duck, mm-hmm. various automatons, wind-up clockwork devices. They don't really do anything. I mean, they, they don't. You know, fulfill a purpose. They mm-hmm. do things, but those things that they do are merely to amuse us or to make us think about, you know, you know, the biomechanical nature of the world or uh, God a mach- as a clockmaker, that sort of thing.
1: Sure, a machine that poses a question.
0: Yeah, and they're also testaments, of course, to the creator's talents. Mm-hmm. How could someone so gifted uh, with machinery make a musical box such as this? Mm-hmm. But then there's a there's another legacy of boxes that he's drawing on, and that is the uh, the puzzle box uh, particularly the puzzle boxes of the, the Victorian period and I have to admit I really wasn't familiar with, with these at all like even you know having seen the Hellraiser movies I never looked into anything anything beyond uh, you know the the wind-up clockwork stuff mm-hmm. but there's a tradition of woodworking uh, trick boxes puzzle boxes and they're pretty pretty phenomenal so uh, one example I came across from uh, uh said to be from the year 1900, is a wooden book money box. So it looks like a book that you would have on a shelf, like a hardbound book, Mm -hmm. but it's made out of wood. If you pick it up, take it off the shelf, you see that there's a coin slot in in the top of it. So it's not being too secretive, like a I put money into this. But then how do you get the money out? Well, to do that, you have to know the trick. And these older trick boxes, generally, there's just one way to do it. So on this one, you slide part of the book's spine aside, and that allows you to slide another little panel, and that opens the box, and you can get the money inside. Uh, it's clever, uh, you know, kind of the woodworking version of the various clockwork marvels that we were discussing earlier. Uh, but then it ends up coming to a, into its own in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Because it's during this period that you have woodworkers both in Europe, particularly in uh, England and Switzerland, but also in Japan, that really begin pushing the boundaries of what's possible with a wooden puzzle box. Yeah. Uh, And the Japanese puzzle boxes seem to be some of the most impressive. They typically look like ornate wooden boxes with no visible hinges or lids. And then- uh, they may require as few as three or more than a hundred moves to open. So like a sliding hundred. yeah, like sliding this little panel. Like first of all, finding the panels mm-hmm. to figure out like which pe- what is a piece of wood that moves here and then sliding it to the side, sliding something else to the side, doing all these little tricks in order to open up the ultimate interior of the box. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and this was a, according to Woodsmith's shop, uh, which is a video series from Woodsmith Magazine. Uh, episode twelve oh four is on YouTube. Uh, these guys, Chris and Phil, host it. Yeah, and uh, the, you know they're I'm very sure they're
1: going for the Hellraiser audience. By the way,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're exactly what you might imagine when you think of like sort of I'm, I'm guessing like Midwestern um, perhaps um, you know wood woodworkers. Wood uh-huh. like, you know, but, but uh, they show off one of these boxes, and the, the craftsmanship is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like woodworking, I feel is a... Uh an area that I often take for granted, like I see a finished piece of furniture, be it something from Ikea or something you know, more robust, mm-hmm. and I don't really think about all the skill that went into making it. And perhaps that's why things like wooden puzzle boxes exist, to show you just how much skill is involved in turning uh, you know, raw wood into something that serves a purpose.
1: Well, there's something counterintuitive about it because we don't usually think of woodworking as, as being concerned with moving parts. Yeah. Uh, most often woodworking is, you know, design and crafting of static elements maybe with very few moving parts or something. So maybe there's a hinge or something on a cabinet. But these combine elements of uh, of course the kind of beautiful static uh, art and design of woodworking with the kinds of interlocking mechanisms you'd more often see in machinery and metalworking.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you know, I can I can describe them a little bit, but I really you should look up some videos of people manipulating these boxes, uh, and then hopefully you know get your hands on a, a wooden puzzle box of your own because there are still people making them. Uh, there's an individual by the name of Kagan Sound, that's with a K, K A G A N S O U N D at kagansound.com. You can look him up. He's apparently one of the the foremost wooden puzzle box makers in the world. And he's, he's something of a modern day uh, Lemarchand, Marchand, uh, if you will. Oh,
1: wait. Well, that's from the fourth movie, right? We find out that the creator of the box is somebody named Le Marchand. Uh, I think it's also revealed in the novella. It, oh, OK. Yeah. It's, it's the lament configuration or the Le Marchand box. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, there are also people that are apparently making puzzle boxes out of Lego blocks, which makes sense. Now, some of you might say, "Well, hey, how about the Rubik's Cube? Hmm. Uh, uh, Erno Rubik's uh, 1974 uh, invention." I would say, well, like if you do it just right, it opens up
1: and there's something inside.
0: Well, that's the thing; it doesn't have an interior, so right, it's not. Right. It's a puzzle cube, not a true puzzle box. There is no inside to the Rubik's cube. It will not open up
1: new realms of pleasure and sensation. No, that's not true. If you solve it, you get all the faces <laughs> solid colors. Hooks shoot out of the walls. It's how you get the hooks. Um, yeah, I, I should
0: also point out though, it's not always completely clear in the Hellraiser books that the Lament configuration has an interior either. Uh, But there are shots in the film that establish an interior to the box and its interior is described in the novella. So there
1: There are scenes in the movie that I can imagine would have worked a lot better in fiction when you didn't have to see them staged. And one of them is the scene where the box is solved in order to fix the problem. You know, where the Cenobites are sent back to their realm because – Kirsty Swanson like does the right things with the box. I mean, it just looks funny when she's messing with the box while the house is falling apart, and Pinhead is saying, "No, don't do that." Yeah, yeah, it's yeah the problems of
0: translating the the novella to to the film because in the the novella the box is also not described as being really ornate either. Mm-hmm. It's really more in com- has more in common in the, in the book with the these wooden puzzle boxes we've described. Mm. Now. Uh, you know, the the uh, here's another area to consider. So the the box of lament is largely positioned as a thing that must be solved in order to open a gate, to reveal a secret. Uh, but we probably shouldn't forget that the centipites are also presented, especially in the novella, as explorers. Uh, and there's a sense of curiosity to them. Uh, they're truly uh, spaced out on sensation, you might say. <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. I, so I'm wondering, might we consider the lament configuration as a means of exploration as well? Uh, because certainly puzzle boxes are used in various animal studies by scientists, typically with a food reward at the center. Uh, I believe we have discussed uh, the, the sorts of boxes in the study of corvids mm-hmm. uh, where there'll be like – generally, you know, there's food in the middle of the box. There may be some tools or they have to make their own tool, what have you. But they have to come up with a way to free the prize from the box, which is ultimately what Frank's trying to do with the lament configuration. huh. Now, another noteworthy puzzle box from uh, science uh, history is uh, Thorndike's Puzzle Box. Uh, This is the uh, the work of uh, an American psychologist uh, who was working at the same time as as Pavlov uh, in in the same area, you know, looking at animals and their problem-solving abilities and their behavior. Uh, And he used this on cats uh, in particular to test their learning and problem-solving abilities. They're essentially cages that can be uh, exited by performing the correct task, hitting the right mechanism, etc., in order to, uh, to step out of the cage and get your food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and his main observation from all of this was that a cat would behave erratically the first time you, used, you put them in the box, the first time they were in there for the experiment, but then they would learn. So in subsequent experiments, they, wouldn't, they would waste less and less time in the box. They would just realize like, oh, I'm in here again. I push this button, then I get out and I can get my food. And then Thorndike's work would lead to another noteworthy box, Skinner's box, in which the animal uh, has to engage a mechanism in order to be fed within the box, Mm -hmm. Uh, the work of B.F. Skinner. So uh, later installments of the Hellraiser franchise explore to some degree the idea of the box as a place or thing that may contain us, but for the most part, not so much. But the, the idea of the puzzle box as a means of exploring
1: human desire, uh, I think that's kind of an interesting idea to consider. Well, it makes me wonder if the box is also being used to test us somehow. If it is being used to test us, then uh, to test the humans that you know play with it, obviously, the people doing the testing would be the Cenobites, mm-hmm. right? So maybe we should turn to the Cenobites And think a little bit about uh, about pain, experience, sensation, and flagellation. Absolutely.
0: All right. So let's just start with the word cenobite, because this this really gets into a lot of what we're going to discuss here. A cenobite is merely a member of a religious group living together in a monastic community. There are plenty of cenobites. Technically, there are plenty of cenobites in the world today. And they have, they have nothing to do with the Hellraiser movie.
1: If you've never seen it written out, it is not spelled like Cinnabon. <laughs> uh, it is C-E-N-O.
0: Yeah, the word apparently emerged in the 15th century. And it comes from the the late Latin uh, uh if, if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, basically, you have the Greek uh, "coin" koin, plus bios life. So it basically means the monastic life. Hmm. Now, one obviously does see certain levels of self-inflicted pain, however, in monastic history. Uh-huh. Uh, so religious rites of flagellation or bloodletting uh, can be found throughout Christian, Islamic, Hindu, Buddhist, Native American, and other r- religious uh, rites. Uh, we, we've covered some of these on the show before. There, there are plenty of religious rites of pain that can be found in the world and in human history, just as there are various secular rites of pain that can be found today within the realms of, say, performance art or even uh, you know, BDSM. Uh, for instance, uh, the later of which served as partial inspiration for Clive Barker, and likewise, Barker's work uh, wound up influencing BDSM
1: uh, to some degree as well. Oh, that's not surprising. Uh, so I was looking around, yeah, for more historical ideas about pain and pleasure, indivisible as the uh, as Pinhead says. They explore, and I came across a book by the American psychologist James H. Luba, who lived 1868 to 1946 who focused a lot of his work on the psychology of religion. And this book was called The Psychology of Religious Mysticism. And in this book, uh, there's a part where he's in the middle of a section about narcotics, consciousness, and mysticism. And Luba begins to discuss the idea of pleasure in pain or enjoyment in suffering, which is a major theme of of this movie and of the novel. And his hypothesis is – that, quote, the apparent paradox of people seeking and enjoying pain becomes intelligible when one takes into account the passion for vivid consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he, of course, is. this is in the context of religious experience. So he mentions members of uh, self-flagellating Muslim sects, of the, quote, painful ascetic practices of the yogi or the violent dancing frenzies of the minads. He says those, quote, all may yield a sense of new or increased life. And what does he mean by that? Well, he explains further by quoting a letter from uh, Gotthold Ephraim Lessing to Moses Mendelssohn Which, uh, in which Lessing writes, We are agreed in this, my dear friend, that all passions are either vehement cravings or vehement loathings, and also that in every vehement craving or loathing, we acquire an increased consciousness of our reality, and that this consciousness cannot but be pleasurable. Consequently, all our passions, even the most painful, are, as passions, pleasurable uh which is kind of interesting i'll explore more in a second but that i just realized that made me think of a passage in the brothers karamazov that's mm. all about uh a character talking about the the pleasure one takes in taking offense uh <laughs> and i remember being like wow I, how have i never read this before uh-huh. it, it's so true that like in in getting mad about something unfair that has happened to you or somebody who's been mean to you or something, mm-hmm. there is so often this feeling of like – almost joy in the way that you, you get worked up about it.
0: Yeah, and and there's a difference too. Like there's certainly – there's righteous anger. There's a situation where like if you feel like you've been wronged uh-huh. and, so, and you're your having been wronged is a part of a larger problem in the culture or in the world, uh-huh. then yeah, you can get in this area of righteous anger. But I think more of what you're talking about here are the petty things <laughs> in life, you know, where it's like the, 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 the server at a restaurant doesn't bring you uh, – uh, your appetizer first right. and you, you get, I've been wrong.
1: Yes. And I, you just start getting excited about how mad you are. Yeah, And on
0: some level, like you're probably not thinking, oh, I feel so alive. I'm so <laughs> angry at this server.
1: But in a way, that is happening. Uh, but yeah, so what does Luba think is going on with these, these passions being pleasurable even when they're painful? Uh, he writes that it's because these heightened states of awareness and passion triggered by pain- offer an escape from a sort of baseline form of consciousness characterized by tedium, insensibility, and normal fatigue. Thus, for some people, normal states of consciousness become so boring, so exhausting and tedious, that the self-infliction of pain actually unlocks a state of mind that is, to them, preferable by contrast. And and this becomes an important distinction In, in Luba's idea here. It's that religious ecstasy in the self-infliction of pain is not actually an enjoyment directly of the pain itself, but an enjoyment of a kind of rapturous and highly aware state of mind. that's brought about by the infliction of pain, quote, not the pain nor the wound does the martyr enjoy, but the exaltation that comes with the quivering of the flesh.
0: Ah, the quivering of the flesh.
1: (laughs) Oh, you're a fan too? (laughs) No, I I mean it's – So it's interesting. I'll come back to Hellraiser in just a second. I mean, first I would point out that, of course, this is in the sort of like William Jamesian cast of like broad observational psychology. It doesn't necessarily mean he's wrong, but it does mean that it should be thought of more like interesting philosophical writings based on observations rather than conclusions derived from rigorously controlled experiments. Right. Uh, But again, not to say he's wrong. Uh, It's just that it's not really science by modern standards. It's more like philosophy and cultural criticism. be onto something there uh, and I do think those observations may be onto something it's funny that it lines up so well with the character of Frank in Hellraiser a man who again in the movie we we see a couple of scenes. Of him appearing disgusted by normal hedonistic pleasure, like all of the regular pleasures of the flesh that seem to have they failed for him. They don't work anymore. Everything's boring, so according to Luba's framework here, it could make sense for him to join a self flagellating order devoted to the mortification of the flesh, because maybe pain will unlock higher states of conscious awareness and excitation that he wants to reach. But for which the bridges of normal pleasure have collapsed.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a solid read on on, on Frank's character for sure. You know, but also Julia is the sort of flip side to that coin. She's mm-hmm. the tedium side of it. Uh, she is. She lives this life of boredom and perhaps some level of contempt for her boring husband as mm-hmm. well, um, and ends up being sucked into this world of uh, of intense sensation, as uh, just as Frank has.
1: But I think in all this, one thing we get to is that. It starts to become complicated to try to define and understand pain, I think, because when you ask, well, what is pain? It's something we all know about. You know, there's no debating whether there is such a thing as pain. But when you try to come up with a rigorous definition of it that applies to every case, that becomes difficult. Well,
0: oh, I, I think it goes back to that quote from uh, the hell priest himself. Uh, what we think of pain is a shadow, but pain uh-huh. has a face. Uh, <laughs> But, just, yeah. it, but actually, like f- for us uh, to actually define the lines of that face, uh, it, it's it's extremely difficult. Yeah. And a huge part of that, and this is something we've talked about on the show before, is like the, the difficulty in even discussing pain. Like I can talk about my pain. You can talk about your pain. But it becomes very difficult for us to properly understand each other's pain uh, and, and properly related.
1: Yeah, and there are some contexts in which it, I think it's simpler than others. Mm-hmm. But even in the, the simpler ones, say like regular nociceptive body pain that you would feel in the context of, a, a, you know, getting pricked with a needle or something in a clinical setting. Even then, if, if we look to like best approximation type answers within the medical world, you can get definitions like this one, which is cited by the International Association for the Study of Pain. Quote, Pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience that is associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in such terms. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so that's kind of complicated. It's got multiple clauses in there. But also, one of the things that's difficult about that, uh, you immediately hit a snag with the idea that pain is explicitly and necessarily described as unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And this very definition would, of course, I think that would apply to most cases. I mean, most cases when people say they're in pain, they think of that as bad and they want it to stop, right?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, part of it, yeah, the problem with our, our language, uh, for instance, in, in yoga. I, mm-hmm. I, I practice yoga and something that's often touched on by uh, the teachers is that is the distinction between discomfort and pain. Mm -hmm. Like you should work with discomfort. Like discomfort is part of the practice. But if you were feeling pain, then that means you need to back off because you don't want to go into that third area of injury, of damage.
1: Right. Uh, but a lot of times it can be hard to tell the difference between discomfort and pain. I mm-hmm. mean, are they distinct classes of things or is that a gradient with, you know, it, them being at two different sides of a scale? Uh, and of course, the, the very definition that says that pain is necessarily unpleasant would seem to rule out the existence of pleasure in pain. It would either mean that nobody actually does take pleasure in pain. and I think I think lots of anecdotal evidence would seem to disagree with that, right? Or that painful sensations that bring about pleasure are not actually technically pain, but in that case, what are they? What would you call them?
0: Oh, I mean, as a great man
1: once said, pain don't hurt. <laughs> so what are we to make of that? Okay, so you quote Roadhouse and he said, but I think that position in a way is incoherent. Mm -hmm. So he says pain don't hurt, but then he spends the rest of the movie trying to prevent the villain from inflicting pain on people. It's true. I've got a real beef with Roadhouse.
0: But I wonder if that quote, like part of it is that what he's trying to say is that for him, physical pain does not have, at least in this case, an emotional context. (laughs) But I think it's in a way it's like a lot of things in roadhouse like maybe it's accidentally clever because it, <laughs> uh-huh. because it is getting at that d- distinction like right. for for human beings pain is both uh sensory like purely sensory but also it has this enormous emotional
1: context. Right yeah the, it Pain is a physical sensation. You know, there's no susception in the nerves in the flesh, and so it detects something that is an injury, could indicate an injury, or something like that. But then it also is a motivation. It triggers avoidance behaviors. Yeah, like
0: in the the yoga example, for instance, like the pain is there to tell me, hey, this thing you're doing to your arm uh, is is not in your normal practice. Yeah. You should you should be aware that if this continues, worse things could occur. Injury damage could occur. Again, that's normal functioning, not getting into uh, you know disorders of pain. But again, yeah, for humans, pain is a complex topic. Uh, physical sensation, but also this emotional realm as well. And there are seemingly dimensions of pain that are beyond the scope of less cognitively advanced organisms. Uh, you know, uh, not saying animals don't feel pain, but an- other animals do not necessarily have this emotional context to their uh, their suffering as
1: well. Yeah, certainly not in the same way. I mean, you can see that a painful stimulus might cause a retreat or avoidance behaviors in, say, a crab. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to believe that a crab has the full spectrum of human like fear and emotions that, that you would get from feeling a, a painful wound.
0: Which raises an interesting question. Would a being more cognitively advanced than a human being have a greater potential for suffering and pain? And maybe would that explain something about the nature of many gods and myth and legend?
1: Oh, I mean th- this shows up in existing works of theology. I mean I think it's something that's often used to develop the Christian mythos, mm-hmm. which is, uh, of course has a, a big theology of the suffering of God. It says that God came down into human form, was crucified on the cross in the form of Jesus Christ and then descended into hell – for three days and then was resurrected. And in order to emphasize the immensity of the sacrifice, Christian theologians often point out that this isn't just like a human suffering, it's God himself suffering. And since God's state of holiness and perfection was already infinitely greater than a human's, it follows that when he descends to suffering and death, that suffering is infinitely greater of an insult than it would be to a normal human.
0: So the parts of our brain that respond to pleasure also react to sensations of pain. This also further complicates things. Uh, And the line between the two is sometimes a bit of a blur. Uh, For instance, a 2013 study from the University of Oslo found that, quote, the brain changed how it processed moderate pain according to the context of what the alternative was. If the pain was less than anticipated, then the brain transformed the sensation into something comforting or even pleasurable. Uh, likewise, there was a two thousand and fourteen study from uh, Northern Illinois University that linked uh, sadomasochism uh, the altered states of mind that can be obtained there uh, linked them with uh, with those states of mind you might achieve through yoga or meditation you know which I think a lot of that makes sense. you were talking about like just a, a feeling alive in the moment of sensation mm-hmm. uh, be that sensation you know painful or pleasurable like there is a is essentially a built-in mindfulness exercise to that in the same way that if you focus on your breath you are living entirely uh, or or at least more so in the body than you are normally likewise if you uh, you know, if you you accidentally prick your finger, uh, you are you are living in the moment of that 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 finger prick. Like, there's probably not a lot else on your mind in that single instance.
1: Oh, in fact, this actually comes up in the study I want to talk about in a minute that has to do with how. Pain, uh, pain has been shown to alter or mediate our perception of our identity.
0: Oh, excellent! Uh, this same 2014 study, the researchers, uh, in, uh, you know, they suspected that pain inflicted in consensual sadomasochism alters blood flow in the brain, particularly to the uh, uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which plays into our ability to distinguish self from other. As such, intense pain may result in feelings of oneness with uh, you know, the other individual or with humanity
1: or the universe, uh, which uh, is interesting uh, to think about. That is really interesting. I mean, that gets back into stuff we talked about in our episodes on uh, on psychedelics, of course, with the... Uh, the, the sort of self-other distinction that is sometimes dissolved by uh, changes in brain chemistry. But of course, we know that not all changes in brain brain chemistry have to come from ingesting chemicals from outside the body.
0: Right, right. Uh, and I, again, I do want to underline the consensual uh, aspect of that study. They are talking about consensual um, acts of sadomasochism here.
1: Oh, of course, yeah. Now, I figured it would be worth talking about other interesting uh, scientific research that offers complications in our understanding and experience of pain. One thing that I came across that was really interesting to me is something that is known, it's a a cognitive heuristic known as the peak end phenomenon. Hmm. And so this is a a psychological memory bias that says that people don't in their memories mentally characterize an experience by – taking an average of the entire duration of the experience. Rather, they mentally characterize an experience according to memories of a couple of little things and they tend very often to be moments of peak intensity of the experience and then the final moments of the experience. And this has been found to apply to both pleasurable and painful experiences. Of course, not all experiences, no psychological phenomenon applies to everything, Mm -hmm. but to a lot. Uh, In which it very often has strange consequences. It's been documented a lot of times now, but uh, one important early study is by uh, Daniel Kahneman, Barbara Fredrickson, Charles Schrieber, and uh, Donald Radelmeier, published in Psychological Science in 1993, called When More Pain is Preferred to Less, Adding a Better End. So in this study, it was pretty simple. You got two test conditions that both induce pain. Again, like most studies or pretty much all good studies, this is going to be non-threatening pain, but it will be uncomfortable. Right. And what it is here is uh, plunging your hand into cold water and holding it there. So in test one, you plunge your hand into cold water, which was fifteen degrees Celsius, and you hold it there for one minute. And then in test two, you do exactly the same thing. Plunge into the 15 degree Celsius cold water, hold it there for one minute. But then you also have to hold it for an additional 30 seconds as the temperature in the water is gradually slightly increased, though it's still cold, more cold than is comfortable. A majority of people, a significant majority of people chose when they had the choice to repeat one of the two tests, chose to repeat the second test – rather than the first, meaning they'd rather the discomfort go on longer if the final moments of the discomfort were slightly less intense and uh, other studies have found versions of this in different contexts. It does seem that we are willing to experience more pain or discomfort for a longer period of time if the last few moments of the pain are not as bad. And this seems to suggest that there is some way that as we form memories of painful or unpleasant experience, those memories can be formed in such a way that objectively more pain, chronologically measured, seems like less pain, because the ending of it wasn't quite as bad and the ending seems to matter the most to us.
0: Well, this also makes perfect uh, sense if you think of of pain as the signal warning you about something that may happen, mm-hmm. about, you know, continued stressing of this particular muscle or continued exposure to a dangerous element such as heat
1: or cold. Oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't so I'd seen it mainly interpreted like what's causing this <laughs> the main interpretation i had seen had been recency bias of mm-hmm. course you know we tend to uh, no well again there are two things it's the peak intensity of the experience and the end so focusing on the end of the experience it would be the recency bias right is the things that happen more recently seem more salient to us Um, But yeah, that also makes sense, especially for registering pain because pain is a lot about what could happen. It's supposed to be giving you warnings that are useful information in order for you to protect your body.
0: Right. But then again, at the same time, as we were discussing and will continue to discuss, human pain is is complex. So there are other elements that I guess may skew that sort of thing.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, so so that that's an interesting possibility too. And I should note that, of course, like a lot of psychological phenomenon, the peak end phenomenon doesn't always apply at every instance. But as a general rule, it seems like we follow this an awful lot. But if more pain objectively measured seems in our minds like less pain – at least in retrospect then what is pain like what is the real pain what is the real thing that we want to try to lessen and avoid or in some of these rare cases where people are enjoy or taking enjoyment in pain mm-hmm. what is the kind they want to experience more uh, pain in the memory or pain in in the in the moment sensation since those things don't always necessarily match up
0: yeah that's true i mean this is the kind of thing that I feel like this happens anytime we look at pain or you really think about pain, is that it seems like our, our language of pain is severely lacking. Like we just don't have the proper vocabulary uh, to get at all the different nuances here.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it raises all kinds of questions. Like, I, I mean, even for yourself, if you're not trying to make a judgment for other people, mm-hmm. assuming pain is something you want to avoid in this context – would you rather have less pain in the moment or less pain in your memory of an experience? Hmm. I I don't know how to like I, I really don't know how to answer that.
0: Right. I mean this and this is the total human dimension of pain, like the memory of pain. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing that yeah, the, 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 you know, certain animals are going to have to deal with, certain animals are going to have to deal with uh, on, to some level. But but humans and pain and memory and the, the ability to to mentally time travel back to that pain and and then to, to likewise you know, imagine encountering that pain in the future, Like that defines so much of what we do.
1: Absolutely. Now, I've got another study to talk about with pain, but should we take a break first and then come back? Let's do it. All right, we're back. We're
0: continuing uh, to spin off of Hellraiser and the Hellbound Heart and discuss
1: uh, the nature of pain. Uh, pleasure and in pain indivisible, as the Cenobites would yes. say. Uh, So one study I came across that I I thought had some interesting bits in it was called uh, The Positive Consequences of Pain, a Biopsychosocial Approach by Bastian Jedden, Hornsey, and uh, Lechnis uh, from the Social Psychology Review in 2014. And here, th- this is a big review article, so it's like looking at existing literature to collect examples of ways that pain has been documented to have some positive effects. And of course, you can't list all of them, and, and maybe some of these are better held up by evidence than others, but these are the things that uh, the, the broad categories that they found some evidence of. One uh, is, might be pretty straightforward, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Pain often enhances subsequent pleasure by providing a contrasting experience, pain causes people to rate pleasurable experiences in the aftermath of the pain as more pleasurable than they otherwise would.
0: Yeah, like an example of this that ties in directly with uh, some of the methods used in these experiments is that if you go to uh, to certain saunas, there will be a cold water pool, like a chilling water pool in which you may immerse all or parts of your body, and then in, in then once you've overcome with the displeasure of that, then you may go and climb into the hot tub, uh, and then the hot tub will be more pleasurable for the discomfort that you have had in the cold tub.
1: Yeah. I don't know to what extent this plays a role in the mythology of the Cenobites because it seems like they're sort of pursuing pain for its own sake in some cases. Right. Uh, Like they're not always following it up with a nice sauna or something.
0: Well, yeah, we never see them just giving a nice gentle back massage. Right. Yeah, Uh, the
1: the hooks shoot out, the hooks, and then it's like, ah, but then after that you get to go have some ice cream. (laughs) Okay, another thing from their list is they say uh, there's evidence that pain increases sensory sensitivity. It sort of Mm. increases our sampling rate of sensations from the physical world. In some cases, this can be good.
0: Yeah, I mean this makes sense, right? If your if your body is is receiving or resonating with the signal that something something is potentially damaging the body, yeah. then it makes sense that, that sensory awareness is also uh, ratcheted up in order to take in what may be harming the
1: body. Right. Another one they point out pretty interesting is that pain sometimes blocks or alleviates our sense of guilt which could otherwise prevent us from experiencing pleasure. Robert, I think you had some details on uh, a study that looked into this, didn't you? Right.
0: Yes, I I do. This is a study. This one came before the other one. Uh, This is from uh, 2011, but it's also from Brock Bastian, uh, the lead author of the other study. Uh Uh, A real, um, you know, Hollywood leading man name. Uh, (laughs) It sounds like an action hero. Uh, So... Basically, um, Brock Bastian of the University of uh, Queensland, Australia, set out to understand, uh, you know, what's going on uh, with pain in this uh, situation. Uh, Bastian's team recruited young male and female test subjects under the guise of a mental and physical acuity study. The researchers asked the test subjects to write a personal essay about a time in which they ostracized someone. And the aim here was to make them feel guilty or immoral. Okay meanwhile a control group wrote personal essays about a routine memory you know mm-hmm. nothing painful just a memory and the researchers instructed both the immoral volunteers and the control group to hold their hands in a bucket of ice water for as long as they could stand it and others dipped their hands in a soothing bucket of warm water so the question is would immoral test subjects punish themselves with longer dips in the cold water the the individuals who just had to write a personal essay about a time that they were awful mm-hmm. uh, would and then would they feel better Better afterwards, And the answer ends up being yes on both counts. Uh, those who were primed to feel shame about past actions dipped their hands in the cold water for longer durations, uh, and they described the dip as more painful and expressed reduced feelings of guilt afterwards. So, Brock Bastian argues that this experiment illustrates our culturally altered understanding of pain. We've come to process it not only as negative env- environmental feedback, but as justice and punishment. So, on a psychological level, uh, you know, a little bit of
1: self-inflected pain rebalances the scales. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I would say on one hand, this is the kind of like... Intuition confirming social psychology research that always makes me think, like, I'd like to see that replicated, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> a few times. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, assuming that the results hold up, that, that is interesting that, like, the pain would have this, uh, this effect on our self critical judgments. Which also, of course, gives another explanation of why self-infliction of pain rituals might be so common in certain religious orders, especially right. people who take sins of the flesh very seriously.
0: Yeah, uh, we we see we see and read about an example of uh, self-flagellation in uh, Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. Yes, and of course uh, in that in the movie adaptation, uh, the girl is played by the same actor who would play a cenobite in the fourth Hellraiser movie. Really, yeah. Huh. So there's your vital Umberto Echo um, Hellraiser connection.
1: I love it. Okay. Uh, a few more things mentioned in this study. Uh, so one thing they say is that pain – there's some evidence that pain, quote, brings cognitive resources online. Uh, so it helps increase our cognitive ac- affective control of ourselves. Okay. That lines up. Uh, they say that uh, pain th- – this one was interesting and we hinted at it earlier. They say that pain enables identity management – And one example they give here is that physical pain in the body can sometimes interrupt what the authors call, quote, high-level awareness of a symbolically mediated, temporally extended identity. In other words, the kind of thinking about oneself that leads to negative, repetitive introspection, worry, self-consciousness, that physical pain increases awareness of the immediate physical body and decreases the immediate salience of these kinds of worries that the negative introspection about oneself and this this horrible symbolic entity known as a person mm-hmm.
0: tied up in this idea of a soul yeah. Which really we should – so we should thank the Cenobites for tearing the soul apart. Like <laughs> in, in the movie, it, you know, it comes off as more of this threat, right? I'm going to uh, tell you – we're going to tear your soul apart. Well, really we should be saying thank you. That's the kind of ego loss I've been searching for. That's why I picked up
1: the limit configuration. Right. That's how you finally achieve the higher state of consciousness. Yeah. Uh, OK. And a couple of other things they mentioned. This one I think is pretty straightforward but it's true. Pain can be interpreted as demonstrating virtue such as courage – Toughness, uh, dedication—the symbolic value of withstanding pain can sometimes override the physical discomfort of the pain itself.
0: Though at the same time, worth pointing out, that's a great way to wind up in that that third category of injured. If you were just right, – you know, like yeah. I'm, too, I'm too masculine, uh, you know, to, I'm too powerful to listen to the pain signal. Well, now you have the injury and damage single, signal and you have to deal with that.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, and they also note several ways in which it appears that pain promotes affiliation between people. You know, they say the expression of pain can sometimes increase empathy and care for others and the expressions of pain can trigger social connections and they can strengthen bonding and solidarity.
0: And in the later, uh, you know, Hellraiser movies, this this holds true, right? Because once the
1: Cenobites are done with you, like, you are one of them. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, now, I do want to stress on, on a briefly serious note that while we're talking about these uh, possibly recognized psychological benefits of different kinds of pain – We should stress that none of the potential benefits of pain should be interpreted as excuses to continue practices of actual self-injury. You know, meaning like the deliberate damaging of your body tissues, such as cutting or burning, if you are practicing self-injury or considering it, uh, including, of course, non-suicidal self-injury, this is not something to deal with on your own. This is something that's important to talk to people about, talk to friends or family members or a mental health professional, if at all possible. There are other ways to get relief from the underlying issues that lead to this coping mechanism, and they're far less dangerous.
0: Absolutely. Um, now, on the, on the same note, you know, we do have listeners who um, – uh, who have uh, you know taken part in BDSM? We've also heard from uh, listeners who um, have done hook suspension, mm. but I, th- I think it's it's very important to note like these are these are uh, avenues that one should you know enter into with safety in mind, and also if you you know if you go into any of these things, uh, you know safety is going to be a part of those ventures. Like how to. Essentially, utilize pain without leading to that area of damage, um, of um, you know, of injury or certainly infection. Mm-hmm. Um, so, certainly, do your research. It's also worth stressing that that some levels of physical pain, though, though pain is not always the right word, can certainly be acquired through exercise.
1: Oh yeah, uh, I mean, I just want to say one of the studies I was looking at, though it was very clear to say that I, I think at the time exercise had not been found to be like a an empirically reliable way of Curing self injury pattern behavior, mm-hmm. uh, that anecdotally, it was often reported by patients that exercise was had been substituted
0: right, for self-injury. Yeah, self yeah. Injury. yeah I, I would say that, like, basically if you if you were inspired by anything you heard here and you want to try something, well, first of all, the cold water, I think, is a great avenue uh, to, to consider. But also, yeah, just, uh, you know, most levels of, of exercise, you know, you hear about, like, feeling the burn, right? Um, you know, experiencing some level of discomfort during a workout and perhaps the, uh, the soreness that you would experience in the following 48 hours like you know that's a i think that's that's an area where one might pursue some of what we're talking about
1: and that comes with a lot of added benefits for your life and your mental health as well, right, yeah, and if you 're doing it right yeah
0: you 're not injuring yourself in the process like I, so much of what we 're talking about like it really resonates with uh with my own uh yoga practice mm-hmm. is that you know that I, I I can feel myself you know putting myself into this this level of discomfort. Staying clear of the area of injury and in doing so, like feeling this heightened uh, state of existence, you know, Uh, like I feel more in tune with my body and my surrounding and with the people in the room with me that are also engaging in this uh, in this practice that are also experiencing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I would uh, I would say, yeah, don't don't do what
1: what uh, pinhead does right uh, go, go to a yoga studio instead well i would be curious in your yoga practice do you find the uh, the reduction of the negative aspects of self self introspection and and the ability to self regulate your identity uh, processes through this the discomfort brought about in yoga
0: absolutely yeah. yeah that's that's one of the main reasons i do it for sure yeah
1: yeah that's interesting maybe i got to give yoga a try one of these days well, you got to give it more
0: than one try because I hated it the first time I did it.
1: <laughs> is there anywhere in town that does like horror yoga, or, like horror themed yoga?
0: Uh, there's a pl- our our former co-host uh, Christian would go to a death metal yoga. Yeah, I,
1: I've heard of that. It's not the same.
0: Yeah, you want you want a full horror themed yoga? I like, want
1: pumpkin head yoga. Pumpkin
0: head <laughs> yoga. Yeah, I don't know. I, well, there's there there's so many forms of yoga. I feel like there is room for that uh, that brand of yoga as well.
1: Okay, I think we may have done it for pain here, but I think we could. briefly, talk about skinless critters. Do you want to do that?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Frank, uh, in the film, spends a lot of time skinless. Uh, yeah. You know, he comes back as this shriveled corpse and then he's able to drink enough blood to regenerate, but
1: then he, he needs to acquire a new skin. He keeps thinking he's going to get skin, but then he never, like, one victim after another, he's like, he's got to have skin this time. He's almost there and then still no skin. Right. And in the, the second movie, uh, which which I have
0: not seen in a long time, mm. uh, but I remember as being fun uh, and <laughs> grotesque. <laughs> I uh, don't know
1: if I remember fun. But I remember okay. fun. Um, okay. but Basically, it's like uh, it's Ernest goes to hell. They go to no, hell.
0: No, it's not. It, with, well, they go to hell, yes. But as a, earn, I don't think it's quite an Ernest movie. <laughs> um, but uh, no, in, in that film, we we encounter Frank again, and we encounter Julia. Right. And Julia now also has this is skinless and has to acquire a skin. And at one point, she's able to slip away by sort of, uh, you know, being like like sort of leaving her skin mm-hmm. uh, behind, shedding her skin, and uh, it, it is interesting to to then look to the natural world and see that we do see a, a practice like this uh, as a defense mechanism in certain organisms. Uh, we've talked about uh, uh, autotomy before on the show, the amazing biological ability to shed part of one's body to facilitate escape from a predator. Mm-hmm. The most classic example being a, a,
1: a lizard shedding its tail right yeah you you sort of give the predator a consolation prize,
0: yeah or or a distraction. There are a few different interpretations yeah. of it right it it
1: you, It's a compromise it gets the tail you get to survive,
0: but there's also there are also two species of African spiny mice that slouch off portions of their furry flesh when they're grabbed by a predator Ugh. Uh, so, so you know, it's one thing to see this in a lizard, but they, here's a here's a mammal that does it, and it's it's flesh. It's not a limb that it's going to regrow. It's just a big portion of its skin that pulls aside. Oof. So uh, as uh, I saw explained in Nature, uh, these self-flaying mice uh, simply slip out of portions of their own hide and rapidly regrow complete suits of hair follicle skin, sweat glands, fur, and even cartilage to fill in the gaps. And, uh, and we see some of that re- regenerative uh, uh, power in uh, Julia Cotton in Hellraiser, too. Uh, but Frank, he never seemed to have quite learned that ability on his own. No, he had to steal uh, his brother's. Skin. Mm. Uh, now we find another um, uh, rather uh, uh, skilled uh, uh, skin shucker, if you will, in the form of uh, a particular gecko species uh, from Madagascar. Uh, these are fish-scaled geckos. Uh, I'm going to attempt the uh, the species name. This is where when we need uh, Mark Mandinka in the studio, but it's a uh, uh, gecko, Lepus, uh, Megalepus, and uh, basically they have these. Giant, kind of oversized looking fish scales on their body. And, uh, and and basically if something tries to capture them, they shed the skin. And it actually makes it difficult to study them because you have to, researchers have to collect specimens with special cotton-based traps, and even these are, are not quite delicate enough to prevent injury. Like, they'll basically shed some of their skin at the drop of a hat.
1: It's a bummer. You need to find a way to calm them down before you catch them.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, but basically they, they're like, I don't want to be caught, period. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they're a lot like Frank in that, that, that situation. Frank <laughs> does not want to be be recaptured by the, the centipedes, uh, and of course, not only are these both of these uh, these, these these different animals the, the mice and the geckos, not only are they interesting in their own right. Uh, this is another one of those areas. As with you know, lizards regrowing their tails and other regenerative uh, powers in nature, like there is a potential here to uh, to figure out how to employ regenerative uh, medical um, uh, uh, technology uh, in humans yeah. down the line.
1: like salamander research. Yeah,
0: yeah, that sort of thing. So, you know, we could reach the, the, the I don't know about regrowing a human's complete skin, uh, but certainly we're getting into that area of possibility. But the skin comes off really easily in Hellraiser. I don't know if you've <laughs> noticed this. In, in a lot of horror films, uh-huh. um, the, the, well, there are two things that happen way too easily. First of all, someone can be impaled on something super easily. Yeah. And then also an a person's entire skin can be pulled off you know, with, with relative ease.
1: Oh, as far as impaling and stabbing and stuff goes, uh, horror movies seem to forget that people have bones. <laughs> you ever notice that? Yeah.
0: It's yeah, like, like where are the bones? Somebody trips and a table leg all the way through the body. Like just straight through, yeah, straight through the, all the bones in the chest, through the heart, everything, as if the the human body is made out of balsa wood. <laughs>
1: Robert, this has been mighty fun to discuss today, but I notice hooks and chains emerging from the studio walls to That's drag right. us away. That's
0: the sign that uh, we have to call it there. Obviously, we we could continue to talk about uh, the nature of pain here. Uh, so, hey, if you want if you want more, uh, check out some of our past episodes on pain, uh, and I'm sure we'll come back around to pain in the future. Uh, there, there are a number of things we've touched on here that we could flesh out in a future episode.
1: Uh, <laughs> Pun intended. Yes, yeah.
0: I mean, when you're talking Hellraiser, all puns uh, are intended. So uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes, where can you find them? Well, you can find them at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, that's uh, our website. You can also find them wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and hey, if you're on that thing they call Facebook, uh, you can find the Facebook group for Stuff To Blow Your Mind. It's the Stuff To Blow Your Mind discussion module. Uh, that's a fun place to interact with other listeners uh, and, uh, and
1: occasionally the hosts themselves. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson.
0: Thanks, Joe. Hey, this is Seth hopping in real quick just to say a quick thank you to Annie Reese for uh, providing the voice of our Cinebite in the beginning there, the lead Cinebite, the
1: proto-pinhead. If you want to hear more from Annie doing awesome things with her voice, you should listen to her podcasts. Uh, That's Minty, Stuff Mom Never Told You, and Savor. All this month, just like we're doing our Halloween-themed episodes, they're doing their Halloween-themed episodes, and they're all really great. Uh, There's some stuff on uh, female monsters, uh, the feminism of the Alien franchise, uh, female serial killers, the Winchester House, um, let's see, apple cider, the turnip. Do you know turnips were the original jack-o'-lanterns? Just saying. These are all really Really cool things that you will learn if you go listen to uh, Annie on her other podcasts, Sminty and Savor. Go do that, everyone. All right, uh, back to you, Joe. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind dot com.